are getting ready to begin a, a new series this morning. Most of us love Christmas songs and hymns and carols. And when we hear certain songs, we experience deep feelings of nostalgia. Most of us do anyway. Some of those songs are about Santa. Some of those songs are about Rudolph. Some of them are about winter wonderlands. The really, really good ones, however, are about something much weightier. They're about something transcendent. They're about something sacred. Today, we're beginning a series called Songs of the Savior. And in this series, we'll begin each sermon with a Christmas hymn or a carol and take a look at the theological truths that it offers and the biblical roots uh, that it is grounded in. Before we begin, let's take one moment and let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for inviting us into this place. I pray that we would indeed experience you. Uh, Father, I pray that that's what this uh, season would, would really be all about, that we would remember the coming of your son and we would look forward to his coming. And Father, that, that the grace and the mercy that you've shown us in that act um, would draw us to you, that we might walk with you and know you as our father and our friend. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We're going to sing the rest of that song in just a little while. Silent Night is uh, one of those Christmas hymns that just feels like Christmas Eve, right? I mean, it just sort of feels that way. When I think of the song Silent Night, I think about the colored Christmas lights that used to be on the tree when I was a kid around Christmas time. When I think about uh, Silent Night, I think about Christmas Eve services at my church where we held real candles right, and tried not to let the wax drip on us, um, and our parents always made sure that we weren't going to catch our sister's hair on fire, that kind of thing. I almost always hear Silent Night sung in the voice of Bing Crosby, if you guys are familiar with Bing Crosby. Really, it's one of our most treasured Christmas hymns. Um, interestingly, there was an article in the Huffington Post that came out recently by a guy named Marcus Geisler, who uh, the, the title of the article was How Silent Night Became the World's Most Popular Christmas Hymn. He goes on to say this, why did only Silent Night become a century-spanning Christmas hit while Franz Gruber's other tunes, Joyful Christmas and Holiest Night, land in the dustbin of history? So Gruber wrote this in 1883. He wrote all sorts of other Christmas songs. They didn't make the cut. He goes on to say, while numerous articles have discussed this question, what has typically been ignored is Silent Night's status as what anthropologists call a sacred or inalienable object your grandmother's wedding ring, the American Constitution, or the family portrait we carry in our wallets. In other words, 
objects that carry special meaning for us. Sacred objects are created when an important event or sentiment, the founding of a nation, the birth of a child, or the hope of unification is transferred onto a token. And thus that event's meaning becomes movable across time and space. So what was Silent Night's original message uh, he addresses? In 1818, when the carol was created, sorry, it was 1818, most Christmas music was written with one single purpose in mind, reinforce existing class distinctions. Whereas Handel or Bach's music served to sustain the power of king and church, Silent Night conveyed the opposite message, hope for ordinary people. It's interesting that that's... uh, this, uh, that he's, this is Geisler's take on Silent Night. I think he probably misses a few things there. But what he does do is he honors this hymn. He calls it a sacred object. And whereas he honors it as a sacred object, he also, frankly, dishonors it and dishonors the author's original intent. He strips it out of its original context. Now, I don't doubt that it does have a sociological message. I'm sure that's true. But it's much more than just that. The intention of this hymn is theological, and its source, its root, is biblical. So what, the question should be, is the original context for this hymn? To know that, we have to go back to Luke chapter 2. So Luke chapter 2, I'm going to read verses 1 through 20. It's going to be a little bit long, so just sit and enjoy the ride. You'll be familiar with the, uh, the narrative. Um, but we'll begin in uh, verse 1, chapter 2 of Luke. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, there are two historical points of reference here. The first is about Caesar Augustus. His mausoleum is in Rome, Italy. Uh, We actually saw it a couple of years ago when we were in Italy as a family. He died in AD 14. The second historical point of reference here is Quirinius. Historian Josephus records Publius Quirinius Quirinius, coming to power in AD 6 and ruling over Judea at the time of this census. Quirinius died in 21 AD. Both of these historical references, Caesar Augustus and Quirinius, point out that the incarnation, that is God becoming a man and the person of Jesus, that the incarnation was never intended to be read as mythology. It was never intended to be read as metaphor but rather it was intended to be read as a real event that happened at a real point in real human history. On to verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. So the Romans demanded a census of all of their lands and all their people for the purpose of taxation. That was the the reason for this. It just so happened that Joseph, though living in Nazareth, which is a long way away from from Bethlehem, he had to go back to his hometown, Bethlehem, 121 miles away for the census. So Joseph took his pregnant fiancée, Mary, loaded her on a donkey, and began the journey, which would have been five to seven days. And it was while in Bethlehem, of course, that Jesus would be born. The birth of the Messiah would be foretold in the fifth chapter of Micah. Maddie Maxwell read that earlier this morning. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Now back to verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger. And so a manger, as most of you probably know by this point in time, is a feeding trough. It could have been wooden, it could have been stone, but it's where donkeys and camels and cows and sheep and goats would feed. And so it had had seed and gray and hay and animal saliva in it. And they laid Jesus in this feeding trough, in this manger, because, it says, there was no place for them in the inn. Not in an inn, but in the inn. Bethlehem was a small, out-of-the-way little town. Verse 8, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The NIV Bible, study Bible, says that they were terrified. Literally, in the Greek, the Greek words go like this, and they were afraid, fear, great, right? So that was the literal rendering of that, and they were afraid, fear, great. It would have been one thing if a pack of wolves had appeared out of the darkness to threaten the sheep, or maybe another thing, if it had been a bear, they probably would have been prepared for that. That happened at times, but this time, in the middle of the night, out of the darkness, an angel appeared to these shepherds and were told the glory of the Lord shone around them. No wonder they were terrified. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. So the beauty of the angel's message was that it was for all people. How appropriate, then, that God announced the birth of his sons to shepherds. They were lower class. They weren't allowed to testify in court. They were ceremonially unclean all the time. They were social outcasts. They weren't spiritual or social elites. They had no power whatsoever. And that's one of the most beautiful parts of this story. The gospel is always for outsiders, and it's always for the little guy. It's for the down and out and for the least of these. It was always for Samaritans and centurions and wayward women and prostitutes and tax collectors. It was always for the sick and the poor and the broken. It was for 15-year-old girls. It was for shepherds and Iranian astrologers, otherwise known as the wise men. The message of the Messiah was and is for all people. It's for you and it's for me. Back to verse 11. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. So not in a palace, not in a rich person's house, not in a shiny germ-free maternity ward, not even in somebody's guest room. But you will find the high king, the Savior of the world in a feeding trough right beside the sheep and the goats. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. So at this point, the single angel who had been addressing the shepherds is joined by a multitude of the heavenly host. The Greek word there is stratia or army. So if it wasn't terrifying enough for one angel to appear out of the darkness to address the shepherds, suddenly an entire army of angels appears in the night sky. 
verse 15. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. What a beautiful story. It's one that that many of us, maybe most of us, have heard any number of times over the years. We can close our eyes and we can hear it being read on Christmas Eve services from our childhood, or we can close our eyes and we can hear Linus reading this passage from Luke chapter 2 in a Charlie Brown Christmas. But the question is, what are we intended to take away from this passage in Luke chapter 2? God becomes a human? Absolutely. Joy to the world? Definitely. For unto you is born a Savior? Absolutely. Glory to God in the highest. The good news is for all people. Any good preacher could talk about each or even all of those as themes from this passage and would be justified in doing so. But today I'm only going to focus on one takeaway from this passage, and it's this. The story of the incarnation is an offer of peace from God. The story of the incarnation is an offer of peace from God. Listen to verses 13 and 14. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. In Isaiah chapter 9 verse 6, we read about the incarnation. It's foretold. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. In the Old Testament, the word translated peace is shalom, and it's more than just the absence of conflict. It's much, much more than that. It's a word that means that everything is just right, that everything is the way that it is supposed to be. Right? You, for a moment, you can close your eyes, you can sit back, and you can think about that concept. You can imagine that concept. You know that maybe your deepest longing is for that concept, for everything to be as it is supposed to be. Everything is just right. There's a little cartoon series called Calvin and Hobbes. In Calvin and Hobbes, you have this young boy, Calvin, and the tiger, his buddy, Hobbes. And uh, in any number of different places throughout um, Watterson's cartoons, you see Calvin and Hobbes going through all of these adventures, right? And uh, they, you know, are constantly going through all these, you know, trials and tribulations and struggles and, you know, adventures and all this stuff. And one of the themes that comes up over and over again throughout his uh, cartoon artistry is this idea of them at the very end of a long day of adventure um, resting and realizing that it just was the best day it possibly could have been, right? There's a picture of it right there, right? Their eyes are closed, their hands are folded, they're underneath this fall tree, and the day is just as good as it could have been. Corona, uh, the beer maker, (laughs) a brewer, I guess is what you would call that, hints at this piece with this commercial, this series of commercials that always picture people sitting on these abandoned or empty beaches with white sand and blue water where the water is sort of rippling against 
the shore, and that's the only noise. They don't have to say a word, right? Another old beer commercial by a beer company called Old Milwaukee uh, had a very similar theme. This is probably back in literally the 1980s. And this particular um, tagline was, it doesn't get any better than this. And in this picture, you've got a group of uh, people who've been fishing all day long, and they're sitting around a campfire, and they're drinking old Milwaukee, and one of the men says, boys, it doesn't get any better than this. I'm not a beer guy, but I'm pretty sure it does get better than old Milwaukee. (laughs) But they're selling the idea of peace. It doesn't get any better than this, right? I've told you guys this story before about my buddy Ralph Taylor. They had some, uh, I don't know how many acres, probably 20 acres or so, some land. And uh, he had four kiddos, the youngest of which was Henry. And one day he had Henry out on the back of the tractor with him mowing these fields when Henry was four. They had mowed this field, and it was sort of toward the end of the day. And they stopped to take a break on the top of this hill overlooking the field they just mowed. And Henry, the four-year-old, was sitting on the tractor with his dad, drinking a Sprite and eating some goldfish, When he said, Dad, this is the best day of my life. What each of those pictures hints at is this idea of shalom or peace. It's where we kind of know intuitively, like, uh, this is the way it's supposed to be. This is where everything is right with the world. C.S. Lewis preached a sermon that has been turned into a book called The Weight of Glory. And in it, he talks about these desires and these longings that these experiences hint at. I'm going to read a a section of The Weight of Glory. He says this, In speaking of this desire for our own far-off country, which we find in ourselves even now, I feel a certain shyness. I'm almost committing an indecency. I'm trying to rip open the inconsolable secret in each one of you, the secret which hurts so much that you take your revenge on it by calling it names like nostalgia and romanticism and adolescence. The secret also which pierces with such sweetness that when, in very intimate conversation, the mention of it becomes imminent, we grow awkward and affect to laugh at ourselves, the secret we cannot hide and cannot tell, though we desire to do both. We cannot tell it because it is a desire for something that has never actually appeared in our experience. We cannot hide it because our experience is constantly suggesting it, and we betray ourselves like lovers at the mention of of a name. Our commonest expedient is to call it beauty and behave as if that had settled the matter. Wordsworth's expedient was to identify it with certain moments in his own past. But all this is a cheat. If Wordsworth had gone back to those moments in the past, he would not have found the thing itself, but only the reminder of it. What he remembered would turn out to be itself a remembering. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. It was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols breaking the hearts of their worshipers, for they are not the thing itself. They're only the scent of a flower we have not yet found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Broadly, this peace, this shalom, this longing that we experience, again, it's a picture of everything 
being made right. This is just the way it's supposed to be. Physically, relationally, psychologically, spiritually, physically, there's no more cancer, there's no more diabetes, there's no more flu, there's no more death. Relationally, there's no gossip, there's no slander, there's no envy, there's no divorce, there's no war. This peace is not just physical and relational, it's also psychological. There's no more anxiety, no more depression, no more narcissism, no more attachment disorder or paranoia. The most important aspect of shalom is that everything is made right spiritually. Because of Jesus, we have peace with God. This theme of peace with God is so fundamental to Christianity that Paul begins every single one of his letters with a reminder of it. He begins his letter to the Corinthian church saying, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Pretty important concept to begin by communicating that to the people. Just remember you have peace with God. And to the Galatian believers, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just remember, you have peace with God. To Timothy, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Remember, you have peace with God. And to Titus, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. The incarnation, God's son entering into humanity 2,000 years ago, was an offer of peace from God to humanity. The book of Romans, perhaps the most complete theological letter in the New Testament, tells us in chapter 5, verse 1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. Paul goes on to say in verse 8 later, He says, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we've been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. There's a reason why Paul began each of his letters with that reminder, grace and peace to you from God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Peace to you, peace to you, over and over and over again, because through Christ's death and resurrection and our faith in him, we have been made friends with God, and God was the one that initiated that peace, that friendship. So what, of all, what does all this tell us about the heart of God, right? What, is, what does all this tell us about the heart of God? And by all this, I mean the Christmas season, the shepherds, the angels, the wise men, the star, the manger, even Romans 5. What do all these stories reveal about God's heart towards his children, towards us? Let me change the question just a little bit and ask you to think about it. What does the incarnation reveal about God's heart towards you? What does that say about you? What does that say about how God sees you? What does the incarnation tell you about what God feels about you? You might be a shepherd in the eyes of the world, but to the God of the universe, you are a friend. 
you might feel at odds with the most important people in your life, but with God, you are at peace. The incarnation reveals that God loves you, that he sees the turmoil of your life, that he cares, and that through Jesus' life and death, he offers peace and friendship to you because you matter to him. He longs to be with you as any good father longs to be with his children. Absolutely my prayer today and throughout this Christmas season that God's offer of peace and friendship to you through Jesus will dominate your doubting heart and that you'll be drawn to walk with him as your father and as your friend. Let's take one moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for all of these reminders that you have given us um, of what you think about us, that we mattered enough to you that you would send your son Jesus to pursue us. Father, I thank you for what all of these stories communicate to us um, about how you feel about us, that you desire to offer us forgiveness, that you desire to offer us redemption, that you desire to offer us salvation. Father, I thank you that through these stories, what is communicated to us is that we have peace with you because of your son Jesus in his perfect life, in his death, and in his resurrection. Father, I pray that you would empower us to walk with you, to know you, to believe that this is true, that we have peace with you. And Father, I pray that this picture of the incarnation that we get through Luke chapter 2 and through shepherds and angels and stars and a manger, that this picture would be a constant reminder that you love us, that you're for us, that you're with us, that you offer us peace, and that you offer us your friendship. And so, Father, I pray that we would receive that for your honor and for your glory. I pray all these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ.